St. Aloysius Church in Jackson, New Jersey by Mother Seton Academy in Howell, New Jersey, as well as Two Ways, One Passion Food Truck located in Scranton, Pennsylvania. As always, a handful of stuff we're going to get into today in the world of baseball, sports, and unified America. And what we're going to do, we're going to kind of jump into the danger zone from the comfort zone as I discuss something that I'll admit, I don't know everything about, but I do have a very jagged opinion on. And the Nolan Arenado trade to the St. Louis Cardinals. I'm going to break down the history that the St. Louis Cardinals have had within the last 30 years, 30, 40 years or so, of seeking top talent in Major League Baseball and adding it to their team. And I do think there's a correlation between the fact that the St. Louis Cardinals are successful and have winning seasons way more than they don't. The St. Louis Cardinals never go through a lull. The St. Louis Cardinals are never in a position where they're one of the worst teams in the league. They may take a year or two off of getting into playoffs, but they have a postseason caliber team year in and year out, and there's a handful of reasons why. Um, if you hear in the, uh, the world of social media, a lot of people put a lot of emphasis in it. They make it seem to be a lot more valuable than really it is. I think anybody that chooses to be you know, the world of social media does it to interact with people. I think um, if you're a celebrity and you choose to engage in social media, it means that you have some sort of respect and do value some feedback of the fans. But we know what a uh, disgusting, uh, I don't know, septic tank social media can be. And anybody that voluntarily puts themselves out there is going to be subject to the disgusting nature of what social media is. And for those that, you know, care to give their opinion on a New York Mets owner, Steve Cohen, kind of dipping his toe, per se, into the world of Twitter, he ends up, you know, at least temporarily suspending his account. Maybe he's not going to involve himself in social media anymore. But, you know, the problem really lies within the actual understanding of whether people can say whatever it is that they want to say, because people are going to do that regardless. And when you have any sort of forum that's set up where people don't have to be accountable for anything they say, then, you know, naturally people are going to kind of get those beard goggles and say whatever it is that they want. Now, of course, the major story involves the, uh, I, I don't know, a similarly made millionaire, which I'm going to talk about in a little bit, you know, the, uh, the founding father of uh, Cesspool Sports. And really, well, I'll talk a little bit about what exactly it is and why Dave Portnoy has done nothing different than what Steve Cohen did to accumulate the millions of dollars that he has. Now, this man claims that, you know, Steve Cohen made all his money by cheating and manipulating people. Really no different than what Dave Portnoy did when he basically chaired cesspool sports. 
he, he went out there and decided that he was going to take advantage of the sexually charged middle-aged male and set him up with a bunch of locker room talk from all over the country, guys that are going to use profane language and talk about sexual situations and essentially act like they're in a locker room type of setting and cap that off with attractive women that are going to talk about promiscuity all to get ratings. Steve Cohen did whatever, whatever he did from his understanding with the stock market, perhaps manipulated some things in regards to hedge funds to uh, make himself a lot of money. And I hate to break this to you, Mr. Portnoy, but you're doing nothing that is any different. You're no more of a manipulator than what Steve Cohen would be. You took advantage of the one tool that the average middle-aged heterosexual male can't do anything about. And that's the fact that they have this charge for sex within them. And you throw a bunch of locker room talk and scandally clad women who are talking about promiscuity just to get ratings. I don't think that's any different than somebody manipulating the stock market to get themselves billions and billions of dollars. And guess what? If you're in a situation where you could do that, you would. Now, as it applies to the whole, you know, Reddit thing and the different stocks that were, you know, maybe overvalued and had to get bailed out. Uh, listen, everybody has a right to be within the market. You want to place bets? You can bet on sports. You want to do different types of stock trading within a stock market? Go for it. Now, these things could happen. You know, for something that's undervalued, you know, without any reason, people throwing a bunch of money in to manipulate the market. That, that's that's exactly what we have here. And this is why this thing has come to a head. Steve Cohen's choice to throw billions of dollars in to kind of set the market up to where it benefits him as the billionaire. Well, listen, I don't think he woke up as a billionaire, but he, he has the right to represent that echelon of wealth and somebody that is taking their whatever, maybe thousands of dollars that they don't need, which is something I laugh about. You think about those that are screaming poverty, screaming that they don't have enough money, all of a sudden decided to get amongst each other and pull together, you know, hundreds of thousands and millions of dollars to just throw in to make the value of something a little bit higher than it's supposed to be. Odds are those people needed those money, that money a lot more than Steve Cohen did. So to put all this together, what did it end up accomplishing? Nothing. But the problem has always been cesspool sports. And it's something that in the nature and the time, you start with serious radio where uh, profanity is okay. And you get to a point where this guy decides that he's going to take advantage of the fact that men have a certain sexual drive and they're going to want to talk a lot of trash. They're going to want to talk a lot of locker room talk. They're going to want to say a lot of things that if they ever got recorded saying, it would be considered inappropriate. And that's why that's why cesspool sports has, you know, it's detractors. There's many people that will never turn on cesspool sports because of the, the, the nature of the conversation and the way 
that, you know what, it kind of sounds like it's kind of degrading towards women. And it, it kind of is, but it's set up from a testosterone base where you have a group of men that are taking advantage of male sexual drive and they're using it to have a locker room talk type of setting to get those people to to interact. And they use women who are going to talk about promiscuity and talking about how many guys they've had sex with and talking about sexual situations because that equals ratings. Now, we can make a difference or a kind of a comparison to ratings and money, but I think they're along the same avenue. Somebody that has billions and billions of dollars may not necessarily care about ratings, but if you're a radio station, if you're a website, if you are a newspaper, an online newspaper, and you get a lot of clicks, you get a lot of views, you get a lot of interactions, that equals value. And there is a connection between that and a lot of money. And Cesspool Sports has done a, a great job in, in, in regards to earning over the past 10 years or so. They've made themselves money. Problem is, is that they've done it in a dirty way. They've done it in your, uh, I don't know, your, your mom and pop drugstore back room kind of way. And it's, it's unfortunate that they you basically capitalized off of a sex drive of middle-aged men that really can't control it. And you decide to throw this locker room talk in there using women to talk about their sex life for ratings. And at the same time, you could talk about how bad a person that may have manipulated the stock market, may have starred in his own hedge funds and done everything he can to generate billions and billions of dollars. You're trying to do the same thing. This copyright and broadcast is authorized under internet rights granted by the World Wide Web and is solely for entertainment of our audience. Any publication, reproduction, or other use of the pictures, descriptions, and accounts of this show without the express written consent of the past ball show, JohnPielli.com and JohnPielli LLC is prohibited. Any commercial other use of programs, such as by charge and admission for its showing, is similarly prohibited. So the St. Louis Cardinals made another big move. And in an offseason, that didn't look like it was so encouraging for the National League Central. You had basically a series of teams kind of opt out of the 2021 season. The Pirates trading everything that wasn't tied down. The Reds basically saying, hey, our payroll is, a, is a, a rough situation. We can't afford to bring back Archie Bradley, who, by the way, wasn't that long ago they traded for him. Um, they have a relief pitcher that's in a, a great spot in Razel Iglesias. Kind of a team-friendly deal. They end up dealing him over to the Angels. You look at the Brewers. They've been very quiet. Odds are they have some issues in regards to payroll. Same thing you can say about the Chicago Cubs. Now, the Cubs have kind of woken up a little bit. They went out there and they, they, they made a couple minor moves. The Cardinals ended up bringing back Adam Wainwright. And then they make the blockbuster trade, which is not official yet for Nolan Arenado. Now, I think this trade is good for baseball, which I'll get into in a little bit. But if you look at the St. Louis Cardinals and their recent history over the past 40 years, they have aggressively pursued top players. And I think there is a correlation between that and the fact that they have a winning team just about every year. 
Now, they've gone a decade without winning a World Series. I think anytime you get 10 or more years, it starts to be- become a topic amongst fans and amongst the media and even amongst an organization. The Cardinals, the 11-time World Series champions that they are, have a expectation for excellence. And I do think, expect themselves to be in contention year in and year out. And I think that's part of the reason they go out there and they make a trade for Nolan Arenado. Now, by the way, you're talking about a team that's not never known to be one of the highest spenders in all of baseball. We never confuse the Cardinals with the likes of the Yankees or the Dodgers or any of the teams that are considered to be big spenders, but they're always up there. They always pay their players. Adam Wainwright's going to come back. It's very likely that Yadier Molina is going to come back. Do they want to finish off their offseason by bringing back Colton Wong? I don't know. That may, that may or may not happen. But Arenado obviously is going to add a big chunk of salary to the St. Louis Cardinals payroll, as is Paul Goldschmidt, who it seems like it was just the other day that the Cardinals went out there and acquired from the Arizona Diamondbacks. Prior to that, if you remember, they engaged with a big trade in a big trade with the Oakland Athletics and acquired Matt Holliday who had just been acquired by the Athletics from the Colorado Rockies. So they traded for Holiday, signed him to a long-term extension, one in which ended up working out for the Cardinals throughout the duration of this contract. Prior to that, they made a trade with the Los Angeles Angels and got themselves themselves star center fielder Jim Edmonds, who, by the way, in regards to his performance as an all-time offensive position player, is very underrated. He may or may not get in the Baseball's Hall of Fame. And if you factor his defense with what he accomplished at the plate, I think it, you can make more of a case for it. But Jim Edmonds, the big-time player that was available from the Angels, was acquired by the Cardinals. And there was no coincidence that he was one of a main contributor, one of the main contributors for the Cardinals winning a World Series in 2006. Prior to that, or I'm sorry, yeah, prior to that, they went out there and got star third baseman Scott Rowland from the Philadelphia Phillies. So it seems like whenever the Cardinals are lacking that star power, they go out there and they get it. Arenado, Goldschmidt, Holiday, Edmonds, Rowland. And you want to go back before that, the Cardinals needed a good two-way catcher in the 1980s and they went out there and they traded for Tony Pena. Now you think of Tony Pena and you think of maybe more of a coach now, more of a, a person that served as the manager of the Kansas City Royals for a little bit, had a long career, will probably always be remembered as a good defensive catcher and maybe uh, was influential in the, the emergence of Sandy Alomar and other catchers like that. But there was a time in the mid-1980s where Tony Pena was pretty much right on the peripheries of the likes of Gary Carter and Carlton Fisk as far as being the best offensive catcher in baseball. Now, Johnny Bench had retired in 19, after 1983 season. So you're thinking of Fisk, you're thinking of Carter. Those are probably the best offensive catchers in that time. You want to throw in a Lance Parrish, that's fine. But Tony Pena can hit. He didn't hit for a ton of power, but he can hit for average. He could drive in runs. You could bat him if you want second or third or fifth or wherever you wanted to bat him in the lineup. And he was going to produce for you offensively. But he was similar to Carter, similar to Fisk. He was going to own that pitching staff. He was going to call the games for the pitchers. He was going to make 
the your pitching staff better being on that team. So they went out there and they made the Tony Pena trade. But just a couple of years before, the Cardinals made a big trade with the San Francisco Giants, and they got themselves a star first baseman in Jack Clark. So this goes all the way back to, what are we talking about, 1985, with the Cardinals for years upon years making the big move when they need to. And I'm not surprised that they got in for Arenado. And in regards to it being good for baseball, I wouldn't think an Arenado trade to the Dodgers would have been good for baseball. Now, is it because the Dodgers will be the rich getting richer? Okay, I get that. But when we are looking for parity amongst the sport, now baseball parity will never equal that of the parity of the National Football League. Any one of a number of 20 teams got a chance to win the whole thing every year. And sometimes even more. Everybody starts out kind of on the same playing field. And football, especially on a professional level, is such a momentum-built sport that if teams get off to a good start, they start believing in themselves, even though the experts may not have expected that team to be so good in the offseason. A football team wins a couple games. We know about the 16-game season and the fact that one game is basically such an equivalent. One-sixteenth of an entire season happens on any or every given Sunday. So when it comes to baseball and you think of teams that intentionally don't try, you got the Pirates who you wonder what they're doing. You want to give them the benefit of the doubt because they have a new general manager in Ben Sherrington. You got the Orioles situation where they've been tanking for uh, a number of years. And you got a number of other teams that are kind of saying, hey, you know what? Money isn't good for us right now. We don't necessarily have the talent that we're looking for. There is certainly some value that could be had in trying to develop some younger players and maybe take the time that we need to to get ourselves kind of restructured. Problem is, it happens too much in baseball. And these full-scale rebuilds are destroying the sport. Nobody wants to look at the Pittsburgh Pirates roster because it's been gutted. And it's not the first time that the Pittsburgh Pirates have done this. If you're a Pirates fan, I feel sorry for you. You know, you're looking at a team that hasn't won the World Series since 1979. They had a little bit of a chance in the early part of, what, the 2010s when they finally put something together led by Andrew McCutcheon and the likes. And you start, you you watched gradually player by player by player and, you know, not even star player, but good secondary and tertiary players be dealt away and let go in free agency. And now you have a Pirates team that, Last year was not any good. And if you remember a quote that was made by a couple general managers years back when the Pirates were trading players like Nate McClouth and Freddie Sanchez, it was thought, well, it's not like we're breaking up the 27 Yankees. But I think there is a way of mind or state of mind that leads to this not being seen like it's that big of a deal. It is. It's an embarrassment to baseball when a team basically puts a white flag up and says, we don't really care about competition. We don't care about competing for a playoff spot. You're hearing the players and the owners arguing about 
you know, different things in regards to the CBA. And one of them is the expansion of playoff teams. I would actually be against extra playoff teams because there's so many teams that are out there that aren't even trying. And if you put more playoff spots out there, it encourages more teams to not try and say, hey, maybe we can back our way into the playoffs. And I'm not saying the Marlins or the Blue Jays or, uh, you know, a couple teams that ended up getting to the playoffs that may not have made it if it was a stricter format. I'm not going to say those teams backed their ways in, but there wasn't as much of a sense of urgency if they were close enough or could qualify for a wild card spot. If you're in second place in your division, you're guaranteed a playoff spot according to the playoff format the way it was set up last year. I don't like it. Now, you tell me what you think. Uh, I, I mean, listen, if you're 16 out of 30 teams, you were happy last year because, uh, you know, as a fan, your team made it to the postseason. I didn't mind the playoff structure, the wild card, best two out of three, the next series, best, you know, three out of five, and then the league championship series and the World Series, seven games. It worked out good. But I thought I think it was a good solution to an unorthodox season. I would be against 16 playoff teams. And even if I, I, I talk about my own team and say, hey, maybe they were on the outside looking in, but could have made it if the format was different. I'd rather have the best quality of teams in the postseason because ultimately I want the World Series champion to the best it could represent the best team in baseball. It doesn't always have to be the best team in baseball. And that's why you have any sort of playoff format. If you go back before the year of 1969, when it was one team in the American League, one team in the National League, you spent between 154 and 162 games preparing yourselves to finish first in the league. And if you finished first in the league, that meant that you got to play in the World Series. So the World Series up through the year of 1968 was as authentic as could be because it always fit the best team in the American League against the best team in the National League. Now, starting with divisional play in 1969, eventually multiple divisions and wild cards starting in the year of 1995, we understand that not always the best team is going to win the whole thing, let alone even get to the World Series. And to expand the playoff format to 16 teams basically tells the teams that aren't trying that they don't have to try. And you could slip, you could slip in and luck out in a bad league. You think of the National League Central, which I think is going to get better because the Cardinals got Nolan Arenado, but a, a division that's planning on being so bad, one of the teams that aren't trying are going to naturally float themselves up and be the second-place team in a division. I don't believe a second-place team in any division, especially when we're talking about a league that now has six of them, a second-place team should not be guaranteed a spot in the playoffs. Now, if baseball did something more by forcing these other teams to spend a little bit, and I've said all along, a salary cap in conjunction with a salary floor, that needs to happen in baseball. Because, you know, you got the likes of the Indians who are going to spend about $40, $50 million. You got the Pirates whose payroll could be down as low as maybe $25 million by the time the season starts because they're still looking to shop off players, it, that would be something that would be seen as unacceptable. Whatever that number is, you want to make it $50 million, that would be a good start. That would mean the Rays would, would have to 
uh, abide by that. That would mean the Pirates would have to find a way to spend another $25 million in regards to player commitments for this upcoming season. I, I think that's the first thing that's got to change. And how about let's condemn these long-term rebuilds? You look at what the Houston Astros did, and we could assume in the year of 2021 that maybe the Astros' run is over. And it may not be. They did lose lose George Springer. Carlos Correa is a free agent at the end of the year. Justin Verlander just had Tommy John surgery. If he appears at all this year, it's not going to be for very much. The prospects of the Houston Astros going out there and competing for a World Series championship, though there's a chance that exists, it's not up there to where things were in 2017 and 2019 when the Astros were um, showing you the fruits of their rebuild. Now, they were kind of the prototype on this. They went out there and they said in 2010, 2011, 2012, we're going to put 100% of our emphasis in player development. We're going to trade away and get rid of everything that's not tied down. And they did that. And that resulted in a couple of the worst seasons in baseball history couple, you know, well over 100 lost seasons, a team that really was not heading in the right direction until some of their young players started moving up their system and coming up through the major leagues. They developed a very good team, a team led by Jose Altuve and George Springer and Carlos Correa and Alex Bregman and obviously some good young pitchers. And they put together a very good competitive team that won themselves a World Series championship in 2017 got back to the World Series Game 7 in 2019 where they lost to the Washington Nationals. Now you look at this situation they're in right now, and you got to ask yourself, excuse me, you have to ask yourself, is it worth it or was it worth it to give up upwards to about three or four full MLB seasons to win one World Series championship? Because I don't know if the Astros, outside of maybe some sort of activity, maybe they have a busy regular season, they make a couple upgrades, maybe Alex Bregman takes his game to the next level, maybe Carlos Correa has an MVP type of season as he's on his walk year, maybe Justin Verlander comes back midseason and is the MVP type of player that he was, What in what year was that, 2012, when he won the MVP in the Cy Young? If things start to go well like that, then maybe there's a chance. I don't think this Astros team's window is in the prime of what it was a couple years ago. It may be closing. It may very well have been closed. So that message can be sent out to all these other teams, the Pirates and you know the Marlins. The Marlins should be on their way up. Made it to the postseason last year. You think of some young players that are up there kind of emerging and maybe this is the time for the Miami Marlins, and you wonder, are the Miami Marlins different now with the Bruce Sherman, Derek Jeter-led group owning the team as opposed to those that have owned the team in the past? You remember Wade Heisenga, remember Jeffrey Lurie, you know, they, the masters in building a World Series championship team and then ripping it down the, the next year. The Marlins had four losing seasons and then won the World Series in their fifth year, had five more losing seasons after that, and won another World Series in 2003. We want to assume 
that because there's a different ownership that things are going to change. But now it's getting to a point where the Marlins have built themselves up. We're going to see the honeymoon phase over the next couple of years because I think this team is going to be good. Is it going to get better? How much better is it going to get? Are they going to invest in this team? Are they going to go out there and make trades and sign big free agents? And then what happens after you enjoy a couple of years of success? Maybe another World Series championship comes to South Florida. Do you tear it down again? Because until it doesn't happen, it's going to be assumed that the Miami Marlins are going to, once they have some success, they're going to drop it down again. They had JT Real Muto. Of course, the tragic death of Jose Fernandez complicated things even more. But you think of the Pirates, and I, I truly feel for the Pittsburgh Pirates fan. Because if you go back to the days of Barry Bonds and Bobby Bonilla and Jim Leland and Doug Drabeck, there's a couple of very good playoff appearances. They won the division in the National League East in 90 and 91 and 92. And it was understood that they didn't have the ability to pay those players, especially somebody like a Barry Bonds. And rather than focus on developing good young players and maybe get some good players that were not going to require the type of salaries that a Bonds and a Bonilla were going to make, they decided to rebuild. And then when that rebuild didn't work, they tried another one. And when that rebuild didn't work, they tried one after that. And it wasn't until they finally stumbled across a, a really good player in Andrew McCutcheon that their fortunes turned for the better. And that was over 20 years later. So now that didn't last very long. A couple seasons where they made the playoffs and, you know, McCutcheon's gone. And to this point, every player that has any sort of value for another team is either traded or will be traded. And, you know, what does that mean for a once proud fan base? A fan base of a team that has won World Series in 1909, 1925, 1960, 1971, and 1979. We're talking about a proud founding team of the National League that goes back to the 1880s. And they're pretty much a, a, a pile of dog shit in regards to Major League Baseball. And it's embarrassing. It's embarrassing that there are teams that aren't trying. You can hear about the financial restrictions that the Cleveland Indians have. And some of it's real. Some of it's fabricated. Some of it is led by the fact that we look at the payroll of a Major League Baseball team as the number one expense. And I've said, and I've stated this before, that there is no more overrated element to a business as its payroll. It's the loudest. It's the most tangible it's the one that the general public sees the most, but there's other things that are much more important than the payroll. Payroll, if you set it at a certain number, it becomes the expense at that number. Now, we tend to think that the lesser the payroll, the more money you can make, and I, I don't really believe in that. I think that's a way of, of, of basically getting rid of excuses, you could take the uh, expectations down. Hey, we're spending less on players. That means, uh, you know, there's not going to be that much disappointment if we don't perform to the level of where we need to. 
This is the Passball Show brought to you by JohnPielli.com, by St. Alwish's Church and School in Jackson, New Jersey, by Two Ways, One Passion Food Truck, located in Scranton, Pennsylvania. We're going to hit five more free agents while we can today. And let's see. A lot of them have been signed already. Adam Wainwright re-signing with the Cardinals is a rare victory for me in regards to predictions. But we will total up five players right now. Brandon Workman, Keone Kayla, Josh Reddick, Adam Duvall, and Rich Hill. So first we'll start with Brandon Workman, who I think he could provide another arm in what would be a super bullpen for the Chicago White Sox. I believe the White Sox are going for it. I love the signing of Liam Hendricks. I think they could add a guy like Justin Wilson. Remember, they have two solid lefties in Bummer and Crochet. If they add Brandon Workman as a guy that's pitching the eighth inning, I think that bullpen is much better. We talk about the rotation and how strong that is. I think it would be a great fit for the Chicago White Sox. The Philadelphia Phillies added Archie Bradley. They're going to be looking at another arm. And I think Keone Kayla, if you look at his past with the Texas Rangers, a little bit with the Pittsburgh Pirates, a hard-throwing guy with a little bit of edge to him, I think helps the Phillies as they look to rebuild their bullpen. Josh Reddick will probably be leaving the Houston Astros. I think a good fit would be the Minnesota Twins. He could go out there, play left field or right field, and probably play it at a just as good rate as Eddie Rosario. And, of course, Eddie Rosario is heading to the Indians. So I think Josh Reddick would be a lesser expensive replacement. And I think very quietly he could put up numbers. I think of Adam Duvall, who kind of emerged last year. The Braves didn't really have a space for him, but he earned some spot, some uh he earned some PT in the, in the lineup for the Atlanta Braves last season. Uh, I think he could go to a place like the Houston Astros and succeed. Can he play one of the corner outfield positions? No Reddick, no, you know, Michael Brantley's coming back. Maybe he is Reddick's replacement in right field, just like the way Reddick would be Eddie Rosario's replacement with the Twins. I think it's a good fit. And finally, Rich Hill. I always kind of have this feeling that he's heading back to the Boston Red Sox. Rich Hill was with the Twins last year. Rich Hill got a big contract from the Dodgers. Rich Hill reemerged as a major league pitcher with the Boston Red Sox coming from the independent league. I think it would be a good fit for him to kind of provide some depth to the rotation of the Boston Red Sox. You got Garrett Richards, you got Martin Perez, and now you got Rich Hill and all of a sudden that Red Sox rotation, even though it doesn't look like um, you know, the, the Mets of 1969, it still looks like they got a chance to get some hitters out and perhaps perform a little better than they did last season. So that will be my prediction. I got Brandon Workman to the White Sox, Keone Kayla to the Philadelphia Phillies, Josh Reddick to the Minnesota Twins, Adam Duvall to the Houston Astros, and Rich Hill to the Boston Red Sox. This is the Passball Show brought to you by JohnPielli.com, by St. Aloysius Church in Jackson, New Jersey, Mother's Seton Academy in Howell, New Jersey, as well as Two Ways, One Passion Food Truck located in Scranton, Pennsylvania. Hope you enjoy the rest of your week. You got some NBA games, um, Pro Bowl, which uh, with the Madden-like setting, I think will be interesting to watch. I do a little comparison between that and the Nickelodeon game, and maybe that encourages a little more viewership 
I'm curious to see the way that comes out. Maybe we'll talk about it next Thursday. But, you know, the past ball show can be found on Spotify, on Amazon Music, as well as Apple Music. Check out my channel, John Pielli, on YouTube. And we are with you for the year of 2021 every Thursday and every Saturday morning. God bless you. And as always, I see it on the other side.